0: This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio hosts... Larry Cohen.
1: Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're glad you could join us again today. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to be taking a look at many of the new rules regarding Medicare compliance and how they relate specifically to the railroad industry. And joining me today to discuss all of this is attorney Benjamin Basista, From the law firm Burns, White & Hickton in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ben joined the firm in 2004 and is concentrating his practice in Medicare compliance and workers' compensation law. He's a frequent lecturer on the topic of Medicare compliance to insurance carriers, self-insured businesses, law firms, and professional organizations. In fact, I had the pleasure of working side-by-side with Ben on a presentation just a few months ago right here in Boston. So Ben, welcome to Ringler Radio. Thank you, Larry. Great. Well, listen. Before we get into the uh, all the rules and the new twists around this uh, subject, why don't you give our listeners uh, a short primer on Medicare itself, and what what type of claimant Ben, would be considered eligible for Medicare? Uh,
2: I mean, the, the biggest misnomer that we run into on a day to day basis is uh, folks still believe that people who are on Medicare have to be um, sixty five years of age or older, and that is a class of people who you will see that receive Medicare benefits, uh, but Anybody who has received Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months or longer is also eligible for early Medicare, uh, or in the railroad industry specifically, the Railroad Retirement Board uh, will grant people early Medicare benefits whenever the railroad employee has either a total disability annuity or they receive what's called an occupational uh, disability annuity, and the, the RRB grants a freeze on that annuity. Uh, and it's sort of a complex system, but... It's not just folks who are 65 years of age or older. Uh, It can be, like I said, a subset of people who are also receiving certain types of disability benefits or have a certain diagnosis including end-stage renal disease. So really, it could be anybody in your claim uh, assuming they've worked enough credits to receive these benefits.
1: Exactly. Uh, And I think you're right. I think most people think about the age 65 and older group, but uh, there are a lot of folks that are a lot younger than that that uh, are eligible for Medicare. Well, what have been uh, some of the ways in which Medicare and the whole area of Medicare has already impacted railroad cases? You know, even before these new rules we're going to speak of in a few minutes, uh, Medicare has impacted the uh, railroad cases all along, haven't they?
2: Yeah, and uh, how they've impacted railroad cases to date really depends on on who you talk to. I mean, statutorily, the Medicare uh, MSP statute has been in place since 1980. So we're dealing with a 30, almost a 30-year-old statute where well, we've hmm. seen little to no compliance. Uh, and compliance measures from from railroads, uh, plaintiffs' counsel, defense counsel were sort of all over the board, from the, the ultra conservative to um, folks never addressing Medicare at all. Uh, we've sort of seen it all uh, across mm-hmm. the board.
1: What about what about the area of liens, for example? In some of these cases, have, have... As as people have settled these railroad cases, have they had to deal with uh, the repayment of Medicare liens along the way?
2: A uh, number uh, number have, um, and a number have, have <laughs> uh, looked the other way, so to speak, either yeah. for better or for worse. Um, m- most folks are as, as diligent as possible in compliance. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but um, like I said, we're dealing with a 30-year-old statute. That the compliance, you know, depending on who you talk to, may have been variant because of people not knowing of the obligation to the obligation being cumbersome sometimes. Um, It's somewhat of a complex process. It's a a long process. And... um, There are sometimes problems on both ends. Well,
1: and that's exactly what these new rules are going to clear up. I mean, in in the past, these ambiguities, I think, are now going to become more clear as we head into uh, January uh, with some pretty hard and fast rules that we're going to talk about in a second. Correct. Well, before we get into that, you know, I just want to make sure our audience understands a few of the little acronyms that crop up around the railroad industry uh, and and the claim uh, area in the railroads. And we always seem to hear the term FELA claim, F-E-L-A. Uh, why don't you define for our listeners what is a FELA claim?
2: Sure. Uh, and that's, that's actually a great place to start because of uh, the misconceptions behind what an F-E-L-A claim is. Um, F-E-L-A stands for the Federal Employees Liability Act. This is a, about a 100-year-old act that was put into place to give railroad workers um, a way to bring suit when they were injured on the job. Uh, Most of the time, people make it analogous to workers' compensation, which uh, in many respects it is, but in some respects it's not. There there, there are differences. Um, The main difference being, in an FELA claim, there actually has to be negligence proved, uh, unlike workers' compensation, where there's not a negligence standard. So in general your fela claim will fall under the classification of of a general liability claim.
1: That uh, and I think that's the important element because as we move forward in these in this medicare compliance there there tends to be two, you know, side-by-side areas. One is the workers comp arena where medicare compliance has some different rules and then the liability area and in the railroad uh, arena fela claims tend to drift into that liability side, is that right?
2: Correct. Uh, and, and as I've you know, talked across the country on this, and we spoke uh, to an audience in Boston, mm-hmm. and the, this the huge misconception is still that it's workers' comp, and because as you stated, there are different different rules on them uh, that can cause some compliance issues. But if, and in general, if, you, if you're dealing with an FELA claim, uh, for Medicare compliance purposes, it should almost, you should think of it as if it were a red car, blue car accident, or a slip and fall. It, it's that kind of general liability claim uh, for Medicare compliance purposes.
1: Well, let's talk now, and let's get right into these these new rules. And, and like all other claim areas, I guess the thrust of the new Medicare compliance, even in the railroad scenario, concerns three different things. And I think we can call them reporting elements, lean recovery, and the concept of uh, Medicare set asides to protect against future misspending. So let's take them one by one. Uh, in the area of reporting to uh, Medicare – What has to be done differently after January 1, 2010 that hasn't been done uh, up to now?
2: As of January 1, 2010, there's going to be a a new burden on the self-insured and the insurance industry um, in terms of Medicare compliance. As of that that date, the self-insured or the insurance carrier will need to verify the Medicare eligibility of every plaintiff in every case that has a bodily injury claim, Uh, and then
1: And and, and let me stop you there for a second, Ben, because a lot of people get confused when the concept of having to report uh, every case, uh, every liability bodily injury type case. Mm -hmm. And and we've said before that Medicare would involve people over 65 or with uh, two years of disability or maybe uh, end-stage renal disease. If you had a claimant that had bodily injury but had none of those elements, let's say a 14-year-old teenager – would you still say that that reporting is going to have to take place?
2: Well, it wouldn't be a full-out reporting, likely. Uh, you would, what you would have is um, a benefit verification in every case. There are really two steps to, to the new requirements. One is verifying benefits, and the second step is reporting those individuals who are confirmed to receive Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the 14-year-old will have to get their, their benefits verified and uh, there are some rules where children can receive medicare benefits through certain uh, parental uh benefit grants and uh, things like that so um for the sake of diligence on the parties and full compliance it should be really anybody with a uh, a bodily injury claim that it's interesting
1: pending. so that's going to put a burden on the claim handling uh individuals uh just simply that that those forms to fill out that that electronic reporting to Medicare. Correct. Uh, how, how is that being handled? Uh, let's say in the railroad industry, typically, are are they so outsourcing that to uh, to third parties, or are the or the actual railroad uh, claim folks doing it themselves?
2: Well, it, it largely depends on the size of the railroad and, and or the, the needs of the railroad. Uh, the, the vast majority of the um, class one or larger railroads are handling this in house. Um, some have outsourced it, and uh, the, the smaller railroads, short-line railroads, some of the commuter railroads have, uh, have outsourced it as well, although a few of them have kept it in-house. And I can't speak for every, every, all of them, but sure. I have had exposure to a number. Um, and again, it's a really, in terms of reporting, um, it's the, the first the process of, of verifying benefits, but the, the real burden or the real uh, time and money spent will be on Actually, reporting claims um, one time per quarter, the qualifying or the Act um, of everybody who is a confirmed Medicare beneficiary and they're claiming a certain dollar thresholds.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know the reason. Uh, I think it's always good to look back at what what is the genesis of all this. The reason for all this reporting to Medicare is because essentially Medicare is looking to see if they can recapture uh, any any liens that are out there that that they're entitled to. Uh, if somebody was on Medicare and there was a another source of funds to be paid. Let's say through the insurance uh, side of things, Medicare is going to want some of that money back, and and by identifying and matching uh, some of these uh, elements that they're going to be reporting on, I think Medicare is really looking for money. Isn't that isn't that the case?
2: Yeah, and that goes back to the to the very basic premise of the statute. I mean, the, the statute itself is called the Medicare Secondary Payer statute, mm-hmm. and all along Medicare is is held out that where there is an insurance carrier or a self-insured or another party involved that should be paying for medical expenses, that they reserve the right not to pay for those expenses. So this is is definitely a a uh, more broad, more complex tool for them to make sure that either A, they're not paying money out of their system, or B, that they're pulling it back in um, in the event that they have paid out. And I, I forget the numbers on it, but it was... Um, over Medicare did an audit, and it was billions of dollars that they were paying out on, on claims where uh, there, there was a primary payer involved. And there, there are differing opinions on who should be the compliance force behind this. Um, I'm not saying either one's right or wrong, but the end result is that the liability really can extend to all parties to a claim, um, with the exception of this new reporting requirement. That, that liability extends solely to. Uh, the insurance carrier self-insured.
1: Well, it's clear that Medicare has thrown the onus back on the industry to uh, to make sure that things are being reported and done correctly. Uh, and with the budget deficits that we're facing in, in the country, you can I guess you could say that they're they're going to be pretty uh, pretty direct and pretty involved in in making sure that this works right.
2: Yeah, and then not to mention that this is one of the f- uh, few programs we've seen recently that Medicare has actually initially set uh, money aside to fund. Um, It's not an unfunded governmental program. They actually set aside initially $35 million just to get this up and running. And uh, who knows how much additional to make sure that it's running smoothly.
1: Well, before we uh, kind of break on this, I'd like to talk about that that third area. We talked about the reporting and also, of course, the liens that are going to be coming uh, out of all that reporting, the identification, the repayment. But then we have the going forward uh, situation where – Individuals are going to be that are injured are going to be receiving uh, medical treatment, and if they if they are going to be entitled to uh, this secondary payer scenario for Medicare, they've got to somehow account for those funds and set them aside. And, and And let's we're going to talk about this whole concept of setting aside future medical funds to protect Medicare's interest. Uh, now, Ben, I, I think in the statute itself there is no specific. Uh, uh, mandate that a Medicare set-aside trust needs to be set up. But hasn't that become, like, the vehicle of uh, convenience for all of these uh, efforts?
2: Yeah, it has been. You're correct. Nowhere in the statute will you find the term Medicare set-aside. What you will find is, again, Medicare's right to remain a secondary payer. Um, To take it back just for a brief second, what Mm -hmm. Medicare did in in workers' compensation was They put a very defined process in place to set aside future medical related to the claim through the Medicare set-aside system. Uh, They provided parties with threshold amounts and a process to go through. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: General liability claims fall under the same Medicare statute, same Medicare system. Uh, Though though comp and and liability do uh, differ slightly. Um, What Medicare has done or not done for general liability claims is they have not provided the same dollar thresholds, or system for parties to submit Medicare set-aside documents to Medicare and have them approved. Mm -hmm. What what Medicare has done is they've given each of their regional offices across the country their own discretion, basically, on how to accept and process general liability Medicare set-aside submissions, and FELA claims would fall under that general liability heading. Uh, So what you really have is uh, Medicare stating that it it is a, a... a method, or in some offices they said the preferred method of Medicare to be protected, but no real clear guidance on, on how to go about doing that.
1: Well, on the other hand, if a claimant uh, goes ahead and, and spends, uh, and, and you know, performs this little mischief on this money into the future, uh, Medicare could look and say, you should have set that aside, you should have protected our interests, and we're now going to cut you off from any future Medicare benefits. So there's a, there's a tremendous responsibility on the part of the claimant's attorney and, and all the parties involved to make sure that that money or, or there is some indication or some consideration for Medicare's interest, uh, and not just let the plaintiff take the money and, and go to Vegas.
2: Correct. And and not only from, you know, protecting um, the self the insurance carrier from future liability, but in having the Medicare set aside as a mechanism for paying future medical, uh, the, the claimants also extended the courtesy of if they use that money appropriately, the Medicare in their their approval letters for the, for the set aside will state that they'll pay for medical expenses after that amount is exhausted. Um, so it, it really can be a win-win document for all parties. Um, whenever you have Medicare signing off on their future right, the the claimant having um, peace of mind that their medical expenses will be paid for, at least their Medicare expenses, and the self-insured carrier knowing that all those funds have been tied up. Again, you know if there were more clarity in the system, it may help. Um, but but it has become a pretty well-known vehicle for Medicare compliance and one that has been chosen on both the plaintiff and defense side uh, to make sure that Medicare has been protected and that all the parties are protected from liability.
1: Well, let, let's take a, a particular case. So what would be some of the guidelines to determine whether uh, a Medicare set-aside uh, fund is, is warranted? For example, you know some cases have life care plans that project future medical and the size of the settlements obviously vary. Uh, and so do the ages of the claimants, and and all of that. In uh, looking at a particular claim, I mean, some are going to jump out and say, you know, there's a lot of projected future medical here. Don't doesn't everybody have to say at that point we've really got to make sure we consider Medicare's interest on those kinds of cases at least?
2: Uh, they do. Uh, the the I, I was lucky enough to receive a. I have a very good relationship with one of the regional offices, and they they sent me a letter that sort of outlined when they expect to see. Their interest considered in a case, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the factors in that letter are basically what you indicated. If there's a life care plan in the case, if there's obvious ongoing medical expenses, if there is a substantial settlement amount, uh, the Medicare expects to be considered and protected. And they said that the really only known vehicle for that is to have them sign off on the amount of, of future medical in the case through Medicare set aside. Um, that said. Since there are not formal guidelines, processes, procedures, et cetera, uh, I don't think it's outside the bounds of the parties to consider Medicare and protect them in other ways, Um, that being an allocation of funds for future medical or documenting that a party is not a confirmed Medicare beneficiary, at least doing something in the case, if not going through the formal set-aside process.
1: Well, you know, one of the problems that real-world problems for plaintiff attorneys is when they oftentimes put these uh, life care plans together uh so it's, and from time to time there's puffing in those plans they they they're kind of overstating the needs and yet if the case is settled and that plan is sitting there rec- uh, calling for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of future medical uh it could could put a crimp in how much of the settlement funds are going to be able to uh, be available to the claimant to spend on their own isn't that is that one of the problems inherent in all of this
2: uh it it could be uh, it's really you know, uh from that side almost a uh, catch 22 because yeah. uh, because on one side you have, you know, you want to make a very valid case for your client from the plant side, but on the other end, if if uh, that's the medical number that's out there and Medicare has not signed off on a on a set aside, then that could be the potential number that Medicare would seek to recover against if they ever started a claim for medical in the case. Mm.
1: Yeah, that, uh, that's going that's going to pose a, a kind of an interesting dilemma out there, and it's going to be interesting to see how it's how it's solved. One of one of the ways that. These Medicare set aside issues, uh, in terms of how much to set aside, uh, are being solved in the comp area. For example, is uh, through the use of annuities, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that annuities are going to be a, a vital element in trying to uh, make these set asides work.
2: Uh, annuities are a huge, a huge part of the Medicare uh, set aside industry and funding Medicare set aside. Um, you know, my firm makes no bones about the fact that we are very um, Pro annuity for for Medicare set aside uh, in, in funding Medicare set asides for a few different reasons. Um, one is the cost savings to the parties. Uh, mm-hmm. For the most part, if you have a set pool of money for a settlement, using an annuity for a set aside can save you. I mean, you would know this better than I would, Larry. Mm-hmm. Forty forty percent, fifty percent on the dollar, um, and stretch the money further. Uh, in addition, it also gives the uh, the claimant a revenue stream on a yearly basis. So if they were to have an accounting problem one year or misuse of money one year, then it could be rectified in the future, or they would have additional money coming in the next year. Or so um, they wouldn't be exhausting all of their funds through through a lump sum distribution. Uh, and, and I mean, for instance, my firm for any case, any set aside that is over say ten thousand dollars will at least uh, contact a broker and request um, with our client's consent, of course. And request uh, funding quotes to see if there is an advantage to using an annuity on that case.
1: Well, that's exactly right. You know the way it's set up when when you can take the life expectancy of the claimant and divide it into the the medical needs uh, and come up with an annual annual cost and then fund it through an annuity. You're go- always going to spend a lot less than you would if you had not uh, just to throw the cash into a into a trust fund, for example. So you're right, and I'm uh, I think uh, the annuity business is going to be uh, a little more active uh, after January with with these cases. Well, let's take a short break right now and uh, come back in a minute with Attorney Ben Basista and get into some of the other areas where these new rules are going to be affecting Medicare and the railroad.
0: This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975... Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts; over one hundred and forty thousand cases structured. This is Wrangler Radio from Wrangler Associates, placing more than twenty billion in structures over the past thirty years, and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Wrangler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well.
1: Well, welcome back to Ring the Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and I'm joined today by attorney Ben Basista from the law firm of Burns, White, and Hickton in beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, uh, Ben, let's revisit this Medicare reporting process that's going to be coming uh, down the road in a few months. If you're a claim handler out there, what are you going to need to do come January that, that you didn't need to do beforehand?
2: So the main burden on the claims handler is going to be uh, the collection of information. Uh, I mean, Medicare is going to require that you, you collect information up front on the claims so you can verify somebody's Medicare eligibility, uh, that being name, date of birth, uh, the person's name as it appears on the Social Security card, Social Security number, uh, all these items to see if you actually have a Medicare issue in the case.
1: And let's talk about that. How how is a claim handler going to uh, typically get that data? Let's say social security number of the individual. I mean, obviously, it, it's hoped today that plaintiff attorneys are going to be in their intake forms taking down information that they may not have necessarily taken down in the past to, to comply here. But for the unrepresented individual, uh, you know, some of this information is going to be, uh, I think, a little bit tough to get gather. Is that not right?
2: Uh- it is right, and it's it's still the hurdle that we're you know we're going to see how it's going to be crossed when all this comes about on January. What what my firm has been doing, other firms have been doing, is working with um, the plaintiffs' bar on informing them the type of information that will be needed. Um, basically, what, because of the amount of penalties potentially involved against the self insured or the carrier in these cases you won't be able to settle a case unless you actually have the information required. You're right, though, from the pro se side, when the person is not represented, um, the challenge is going to be how to get that information from them. Medicare has put out uh, documents to circulate to folks about why they're asking for this information, why it's required by the claims handler. Uh, But those five items aside that they're going to ask for up front, um, you know, on the back end of these claims, there are over 130 data fields for reporting that the claims handler may have to account for. Not 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 all of those fields apply to every claim, but still there will be a number of them where information will need to be collected everywhere from the task ID number from plaintiff's counsel to uh, an estate beneficiary, um, yeah. the settlement amount, ICD-9 codes, and everything down the road. So really, as of January 1, the, from the claims perspective, it will be collecting information um, and, and informing both defense counsel and plaintiff's counsel about what sort of information that will be needed during uh, the discovery of a claim, litigation of a claim, et cetera.
1: Exactly. And I think, I think what you're saying is is clear that those five initial data elements that are reported in to see if there is a match to see if the claimant you're, you're, you're working with has a Medicare eligibility issue. Uh, once that match occurs, there are a lot more elements that need to be reported. And, uh, You know, and you're going to, I'm sure going to be running up against uh, issues such as privacy and HIPAA and everything else uh, in this whole realm. And especially if somebody's not represented, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, time for all of us in in the business. Let's talk about uh, the difference in reporting when there's a one-time payment versus what they call the ongoing responsibility to pay a medical. Uh, When you settle a case and it's a one-time settlement, that reporting is only a one-time report, but but if payments are going to be going on... uh, through uh, and, and typically, for example, in a workers' comp environment, aren't we going to be reporting uh, more than once?
2: Yeah, it, it's actually not even just in the workers' comp arena. Um, general liability claims, FELA claims, um, mm-hmm. are generally considered one-time reporting, one-time payment claims. Meaning, you you only have the obligation to report this case to Medicare at the time of the claim settlement, judgment, or award, as long as it meets all the other criteria for, for reporting. Um. On the other side, you have, say, a no-fault claim or a worker's compensation claim, or you have an obligation to pay medical during the life of the case. In those types of claims, uh, you have to report to Medicare when that obligation to pay medical starts, when it ends, and the settlement judgment or reward of the claim. Uh, The the tricky part is, uh, in in a one-on-one meeting with Medicare, they confirm this, you may have a general liability claim where... Through a strange circumstance, you decide to pay medical on the case prior to the case's resolution. Mm-hmm. So, in, in Medicare's eyes, you could transform your general liability one-time payment case into this ongoing responsibility to pay medical case, mm. which, which can create a whole whole different set of rules for you. Um, the word of caution there is: you know, if you don't have the obligation to pay medical based on the type of claim that it is, even though it may be a, a proper thing to do in the case, um, you, you may want to either be cautioned that not to do it or to do it in a way where you know that your your roles are going to change from Medicare reporting?
1: Well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know morally, it might want to try it, but it's going to get you into a, a kind of a, a can of worms. Correct. What about uh, one other issue and that's the whole issue of Medicare liens, you know there're going to be cases, as you can imagine, where the value of the case uh, is limited and the lien is going to be substantial and uh medicare is going to be requiring repayment of that lien not not like on a compromised basis like happens in other lien arenas uh they're going to want the 100 cents on the dollar is what i'm hearing and uh that's probably going to hold up the ability to settle some cases don't you agree
2: it can um and it has it can, it, it has done in the past and it'll continue to be that way in the future um you, you do with medicare they do generally request a dollar for dollar um payment on what they've paid out at the Medicare pay rate. Now, if if there is a, an issue of fairness or equity, uh, say you had a $100,000 Medicare lien and a $40,000 settlement, then a waiver can be sought of part or all of the lien amount. So, so the, the plaintiff isn't walking away with nothing. Otherwise, of course, there's no incentive to settle the case. Um,
1: and I it, think they'll be calling their congressman right away.
2: Right. So there, there's a con- <laughs> There are compromise provisions. There are waiver provisions. Um, but most of that needs... And this is the other... Uh, Audity in, in the lien system, the the liability extends to all of the parties involved in a case. Uh, but Medicare's general practice in a general liability at the ALA situation would be to pursue a lien through plaintiff or plaintiff's counsel. Um, but that's a matter of practice. As a matter of statute, if they chose to do so, they could likely seek recovery from the uh, self-insured or the insurance carrier. And there are, there are different schools of thought on, on that. And you know, the legality, standing etc. But from Medicare's mouth, as a matter of practice, that's how they pursue a lien and a general liability claim. And workers' comp, from what Medicare said, they, they will seek recovery from the insurance carrier or the uh, self-insured direct based on the obligation to pay medical in the claim.
1: Well, that's going to put the onus on everybody before cases settle to make sure all those uh, T's are crossed and those I's are dotted and uh, those Payment amounts are set aside and, uh, and liens are available to be repaid because you're right. You don't want to settle a case and have you know, people coming back at you uh, in the future. That's not going to be uh, helpful for anyone. Well, let's, let's close here. And uh, let me ask you this question in doing so. You know, what are you advising your clients uh, these days about all of this? I'm sure the confusion is going to subside uh, as we move into the process uh, next year and beyond. But what's the best advice uh, that you're giving that seems to be resonating with your clients?
2: Well, in terms of Medicare compliance in general, it's internal education for the client and education for their counsel and the opposing side. And it, it, once uh, these companies are putting systems in place and they're, they're notifying their defense counsel what they require from them and words leaking down to the plaintiff's bar, um, we're seeing sort of a uh, cohesiveness between the three entities and knowing that they're all in the same boat for, the, for, this, uh, for these obligations. So my words of advice are to, A, kind of put everybody on notice of what's coming down the line, and, and B, to really gather information uh, or come up with systems to gather information to make sure you're compliant. Uh, the days of being able to settle a case and worry about Medicare uh, on the back end are, are going to be coming to an end since these burdens are going to be put in, uh, on the insurance carriers and self-insured entities at the time of the settlement as of January 1.
1: Well, that's good advice, Ben. And, uh We'll be seeing how it works as we, uh, we turn that calendar uh, and uh, celebrate New Year's. Well, Ben, uh, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, if someone wanted to talk to you and get a little more information uh, about all this, how would they reach you? Uh,
2: either by telephone. Uh, my office phone is 412 995 3196, or email is also, I'm usually accessible by email at bmbasista at bwhllc.com.
1: Well, that's great. And if anyone wants to reach uh, anyone here at uh, Ringler Associates, of course, ringlerassociates.com. Or, of course, uh, all of these shows can be listened to on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. You can uh, download them to your iTunes and listen at your leisure. Uh, But all the shows are there, and uh, I encourage you to go ahead and do that. So now for Ben Basista, Larry Cohen saying thanks for listening. Now go out and make it a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.